And welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Hoso. Say hi, Kev. Hi. Are you ready to dive back into the boundless depths of space this week? Well, the Thaisians are about to beat me back onto their ship to contain my immense psychic powers. But until then, we can do this. Okay, well, that should give us a little bit of a window of opportunity then. But as is always the case on Talking Trek to You, we are not doing it alone. So we have a guest with us this week. So say hello, Alex. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me on. Really excited. It's absolutely lovely to have you here. Um, well, this week we are going to be covering Charlie X. So we are covering the third episode of the show. We're doing everything in broadcast order rather than production order. So that means it's, yeah, Charlie X's time round. Um, but let's start with you, Alex. Um, what's your history with Star Trek? So uh, I grew up watching Star Wars pretty much uh, nonstop. Uh, almost exclusively and uh, you know there's always been this weird divide between Star Trek fans and Star Wars fans and uh, you know that being what it was I was always under the impression that oh man Star Trek that's that's too smart for me Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) really really uh, I I just came came to the realization later on in life that oh actually Star Trek is very good Um, uh, and it didn't take me until becoming a adult to fully realize it uh i watched star trek uh like kind of here and there at my friend's house he'd always have like voyager on or tng and tos um the original series uh what we were talking about is something that i sort of looked at in the same lens that i view batman 66 sort of campy and you know shouldn't be taken tremendously seriously uh, little did I know that, you know, it was sort of poking fun at social mores and, and the like uh, and making, you know, actual statements about what was happening uh, in, in the world. But uh, I digress. We were flipping through the channels one day and we decided, hey, let's just watch Star Trek. Um, the And it's funny because the entire um, reason that I asked Kev to come on this episode is because this is the first episode of TOS I ever saw, and one of only two episodes that I've seen, uh, the other one being City on the Edge of Forever, uh, which I thought was very good. Um, but this one in particular uh, kind of tickled my um, my interest because it's called Charlie X, and uh, this being the 60s, X-Men, uh, you know, being sort of around that same time frame, like the comics coming out, I wondered if there was some sort of... Um, uh, some sort of correlation between the two and um turns out there isn't uh but uh i and you know this was my first star trek experience uh this episode so um it in a way colored my worldview a little bit of what to expect with um tos and since then of course i've seen like every other tos movie um i've seen a handful of uh, next generation movies and i'm going through next generation for the first time currently uh i'm on season six The goal, of course, is to get to Deep Space Nine, which everybody tells me is, uh, quote-unquote, the best, exclamation point. So uh, that's sort of where I am with Star Trek uh, as of now. Oh, and I've seen a lot of Lower Decks, like all of it. Lower Decks is amazing. Um, But yeah, uh, yeah, I I think that, uh, you know, Star Trek is uh, coming from somebody, me, who is a Star Star Wars fan, uh, first and foremost. Uh, There's nothing wrong with liking both. Uh, Both are really great. Uh, if you happen to be listening and prefer one to the other, uh, yeah, 
Um, I, I just wanted to say that, yeah, I completely agree with like Trek versus War. Those are that same thing. It's like, well, I'm a Star Wars person. I can't like Star Trek as well. And then I got into it via the 2009 movie where it was basically Star Trek with like a Star Wars candy coating. Yeah. <laughs> like JJ was like doing like the, um, like you paint the medicine ball in sugar <laughs> and it makes it. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I've been, yeah, not to reiterate what we've already talked about when No Man Has Gone Before, our first episode of this podcast, but uh, yeah, I, I just watched a lot of the new stuff. Lower Decks, also incredible. Uh, but yeah. Fantastic. Yes, you'll, you'll, you'll never struggle for, for Lower Decks love in this show. Oh, that's good. Um, I, I really don't know how some of my other hardcore Trek fans feel about it, uh, friends feel about it, but I um, I really do uh, think it's a wonderful uh, take on Star Trek. And the thing I love about it really, and you know, I know we'll get to uh, recommendations later. This is not one of them, but I, I do want to gush about it in that I think it's really cool um, that they basically just use Star Trek terms and sort of Easter eggs and references to color the world. And you don't necessarily have to have seen any uh, any Star Trek to to uh, enjoy it, but it's just cool to have those little references for uh, people who are um, Star Star Trek literate. So, yeah, I mean, fully agree. I think I've also mentioned in the first episode that my my real introduction to Star Trek was the Futurama Star Trek episode. Ah, so good. Yeah, so good. Even knowing nothing about the show, pretty much, and Lower Decks is basically an entire series of that episode, which I mean, perfect. I love it. <laughs> Even knowing as little about Star Trek knowing a little enough about Star Trek to make this podcast premise worthwhile. So, uh, yeah, I, it's funny they mentioned Futurama because I think most of my Star Trek knowledge almost exclusively came from pop culture, uh, especially in the realm of uh, uh, Mr. Spock, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anybody can do a William Shatner impression if they put their mind to it and segment practically everything they're talking about yeah i mean yeah same here as uh, william shatner and leonard nimoy's performances in the show are burned my brain without having even seen a second of it that's just how iconic they are well as the as the sort of slightly more long-standing fan i think it would be fair to say <laughs> one of the joys about lord dex is that it, it works for me as well uh, it's such a glorious invocation of everything that that kind of made star trek why i love star trek um so it's really like it's also really heartening for me to hear like two people who are not maybe necessarily as steeped in star trek as i am uh be able to get so much out of it as well and that whole thing about world building that you mentioned alex i think that's kind of that's the whole thing about lower decks that's why it's such a great success is mm -hmm. because it's using all those bits of terminology those little you know filler things is just throwaway lines which build the world and even if you're not already familiar with it it has that that effect of kind of suggesting things without having to then have some laborious kind of which also means this dot 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 where it's kind of over explained to the audience and hitting them over the head they're just like throwaway lines if you pick up on it fantastic if you don't well it's a little detail that you can always go away and sort of look into at a future date or you know when you eventually see an episode that's referred to you you kind of go oh yeah that's what they were talking about whatever it's just incredibly skillfully handled so it's it's incredibly heartening for me to hear both of you say that you love it so much from from that kind of perspective yeah it's great uh i do wish that that there was a star wars show like that but um i don't think that will ever happen well before we before we get dragged too far down the the uh the uh star wars television route of which i have many many comments but we, <laughs> we should probably actually turn to the episode we're supposed to be talking about this week which is of course charlie x so um kev yeah would you care to give us a summary please all right uh well as part of the summary i'm going to read one of my favorite tweets of all time i've already tweeted it this morning on how it relates to this episode let me just pull it up. I'm so sorry. Uh, 
from Sadiq at S-A-D-I-Q-O-J-N. Why do you bash deadbeat dads, deadbeat in quotes, for not being there for their kids when we never question if the child has bad vibes or if they're just unpleasant to be around? I think this tweet from 2018 is an essential text to understanding the 1966 TV episode, Charlie X, uh, a kid beams aboard the Enterprise and has bad vibes for 40 minutes. And the vibes get increasingly worse as he starts stalking Yeoman Rand and doing other weird stuff. Kirk tries to reason with him. Eventually, he just becomes a full-on it's-a-good-life-style tyrant. And then aliens beam down and take the kid away. Fantastic. Yep, that's that's pretty much the summary of it. So um, let's start with you, Alex. Um, how did you find this episode? Did you like it? And, and do you think it works well with its premise? Yeah, so this is my second time watching this episode. It's I, I, it's a little embarrassing that the uh, the only two TOS episodes I've watched are this and City on the Edge Forever. And this one I've seen two times now. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first time I saw it, I was very quite, quite the contrast. Yeah. 100 percent uh yeah the first time i saw this i was incredibly confused um uh and you know what i was still confused when i watched it this time uh i had to kind of uh rewind it a little bit because it didn't really seem that when uh spock mccoy and kirk are discussing like oh well could he be you know what kind of uh species uh could he have come from and they do mention uh, uh thasians right um, but like, oh, he can't be a Thasian because he looks too human. And it didn't occur to me until after I watched the episode um, and rewinding the last, like, I don't know, five to seven minutes that, oh, okay, you did explain it, but you did it in such a weird offhand way at the very end of the episode that I just, it just kind of flew by for me. So uh, in, in a way, this episode didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, uh, Except for like, oh, hey, here's some fun shenanigans of people getting disappeared and turned into iguanas. Um, I don't know. Like, I uh, I don't dislike this episode. I think it's kind of fun, um, especially when you're viewing it from that, like, you know, Batman 1966 lens. Like, it's kind of uh, kind of campy. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. Uh, Kev, I, I love your um I love your summary about how it's just about a kid with bad vibes. That's it. <laughs> yes. I, I I pretty much agree. I'm very much of two minds this episode. Uh, it's not, well, it's not the tightest script in the world. Um, the ending, as you mentioned, is very confusing and out of nowhere. If you're looking for, like, plot clarity, you will be lost. <laughs> There's uh, basically... It is it is mostly like a mood piece for that first like forty minutes, and then the ten minutes of plot they bother to put in don't make any sense. But I have to, I don't know if not good a bat for it. it it's a continuously entertaining episode. Uh, I invoke it's a good life in there like very intentionally. It is very much feels like a hand in a sort of Twilight Zone esque kind of a uh, horror show, and it's. Yeah, it just works well here on those terms. I think a lot of, especially as it ramps up to him being a full tyrant and like taking people's faces off and turning them into lizards. I mean, that's cool. That's scary. It's weird. And I think the build of tension up to that moment is well paced. Um, I think it starts, I mean, it starts with, oh, there's something, like the whole teaser is, there is something off about this kid. Like that's the dramatic tension. <laughs> Nothing has happened yet. Kirk is just like, that kid's looking at me weird. Cut to opening credits. And yeah, so I think 
with that as such like an efficient mood starting point, I think it builds so well. I think it gets to such a crazy climax, but then you don't really have any way to go from there except have aliens come in and save the day. Well, save the day question mark. They just kind of steal him and Kirk's even kind of against that. It is a very, it's a very interesting ending, which we can get into later, but yeah. I think overall my thoughts are what works about this really does work, but there are just so many flaws to it as well. Yeah, it's a weird kind of mishmash of stuff. I'm I'm going to slightly disagree with something that you said, Kev, because I don't think that this is... I think the pacing is one of the... I'm, I'm not a... Let me start that again. I'm not the biggest fan of this episode, and I think part of the problem that I have with that is that the pacing to me feels a little bit off. I think when kind of Charlie goes, like, full tyrant... I think we could do with a bit more of that. I think mm. the problem is that the threat is kind of established and we understand how much um, danger the crew are in. And then they're kind of in that danger for more or less half an hour without any kind of escalation. Then suddenly we get faceless people with lizards and then there's a deus ex machina and it's all over and we're off to the next starbase. There's not... I, I, I feel that build should be escalated kind of more mm. through the, the, the episode. Because, like you said, like from that first scene when they encounter the entire crew, uh, and particularly, it's actually a really nice performance from um, Charles uh, J. Stewart as uh, Captain Rammert. He's doing this. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he's great. He's really good. Yeah. No, here he is. He's yours. He's yours. Like, like, like somebody <laughs> desperate to drop their kids off at school. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, please take them away. Take them away. That's that's a nice little performance. And like you said, that like we don't get any explanation. It's just like a crash into the title sequence. That's fine. We we have this kind of uncanny sense of threat. Then it's sort of very quickly established um, that Charlie has his powers and then he just uses them to sexually harass somebody for 30 minutes and then we get all the cool interesting stuff with people being sent to the cornfields um, there, I've, there needs to be more of kind of like a dramatic build we spend time with the characters which is good and I don't want to suggest otherwise but I think alongside that we could get a slightly greater sense of escalation there's just one too many scenes of kirk glowering at him and then him reluctantly getting sent to his bedroom yeah um if i may uh i i kind of noticed they're all throughout this episode that um having become a lot more well versed in tng these days that uh you know there have been episodes of tng where you know uh, the crew has been put into some sort of inescapable position like this. And it's all often fun to see Picard use his cunning to, um, to figure out a diplomatic way to solve a solution like this. And there's always sort of a rhyme or reason to it, but Kirk just sort of randomly comes up with this idea that, Oh, well perhaps his, you know, perhaps he has a limit to his power. I, I don't know. I feel like there should have been maybe, uh, something there to have hinted at this or, you know, maybe some body language from Charlie to uh, show that like, oh, he's, um, you know, overexerted himself, that kind of thing, uh, rather than the solution just sort of, the, well, the solution to sort of shorting out his power coming out of nowhere. I think that's maybe the biggest issue with the episode is that there's like three solutions to the problem and they run and like only one of them works as the one that Harris is the least input in. I mean, the solution that intrigued me the most that I didn't follow through with almost at all is uh, Bones' suggestion that, um, McCoy's suggestion that he, Kirk tries empathy with him, that relates to him and acts as a father figure. 
And if it's really kind of like a more like emotional conflict at the end, I think that would have been very interesting having him maybe realize that you shouldn't act like a weird little weirdo for lack of a better term, uh, but instead have like empathy for the people around you. But instead you're right. Do we get the techno babble explanation after that? Where it's like, Oh, he's got too far gone. Let's uh, turn on all the lights and see if that stops him. And then as that's working, we then have the floating head aliens come in and it's like, ah, we're sorry about this, our bad, and just yank him out of there. It's two very anticlimactic endings back to back. And it kind of eschews the um, the more interesting angle this could have taken. Yeah, I think that ending is one of the big problems that I have with it. But I think I actually like the idea that they basically turn on the lights and, and sort of overburden him. I, I, I think... I think that's kind of where the solution to the episode should have uh, rested. Maybe we're talking about the ending too early on in the episode, but oh well, never mind. Um, we're just it's 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 clever the way that they work it out. I like the way that Kirk suddenly has this insight. They say, "Oh well, wait, he's not doing that anymore," and they interrogate why, and they figure out how to beat him. So they've actually done the thing that Star Trek should be good at, which is they've used investigation and, and knowledge to understand and find a solution to the problem of the week. That's, that's how it should proceed. It, 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 to use a word, logical. That, that, you know, maybe there are limits to his powers and maybe, you know, he has really extended himself and it's a complicated ship and it's bigger and more difficult to control than the entire is and all this kind of stuff. All that kind of material I like. And then, for no reason at all, having already come up with the solution to defeat Charlie, there's another solution to defeat Charlie, which just comes out of nowhere. And, it, you know, we get a wobbly green head for no readily apparent reason, and then they just take him away. But they've already figured out how to beat him. Now, I don't want to say that, you know, he's, he should just be put in suspended animation after that, or you know, whatever the solution would have been if they'd overstretched him and McCoy had really been able to sedate him or whatever. But they had figured out, and the script has figured out, how to get round Charlie. He isn't like an endlessly powerful... He's not Gary Mitchell, who appeared to have no limits to his power. He's not Q. He's not even Trellane. There are limits to what he can do, and so they push him to his limits in order to find the solution for the problem. But then... There's this stupid deus ex machina that the episode just doesn't require. And it really undermines what I think was otherwise a good approach. Yeah, I think I really agree. And put it that way, I think maybe that is the turn the lights on ending is the better solution uh, they could have taken. Because then what I also liked about those other two endings, I mean, the empathy one is more interesting, I think, dramatically. Mm. But it does, and this will sort of steer us to, I think, the next biggest topic. Um you kind of almost don't want him to be redeemed at the end either. It would be, he's such a monster at that point. And there's almost some very forward thinking 60 years later to 2022 parallels to Charlie. And I mean, I'll just say the word, you know, incels, <laughs> uh, MRA, that sort of idea of I can, I can be a nice guy and put kindness coins in a woman. And why won't they date me kind of mentality that you, uh, it feels increasingly like you can't reason out of a person online, at least. And maybe it was a more optimistic ideal in the 60s that, oh, you can just like tell people to learn etiquette where that feels more impossible nowadays. So I'm not to get all on that. But my point being, I, I also do kind of like the idea of just, well, 
a bad guy, I mean, you you can reason to him up to a point, but if they're just not taking the lesson, yeah, just like send him off to green floating headland or whatever. We don't want to deal with him anymore. Um, I haven't looked this up, um, but uh, you mentioned it's a good life, right? The yeah, the Twilight Zone episode for context is the Twilight Zone episode uh, where the little kid like controls people in this in the little town yes. and like sends them to the cornfield. Guy gets turned back in the box. Not for you, Alex, but just for like any listeners who might not be familiar. I know. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I was like in my notes, I have oh yeah, he's the kid from the Star Trek episode where you know the Simpsons rips off of it and the Trails of Horror where yeah. You know. uh, so then I looked it up and I I didn't know when. Do you know the uh? It, where the air dates are in comparison to each other. I do think that's kind of, interesting. I mean, I think they're both sixties. I can look it up right now, but twilight zone would have finished by now. I think twilight zone ran from 59 to 63. I want to say, uh, yeah, I have the exact numbers. This is, uh, five years before, like within a couple months. So it's 61 to 66, both in the fall. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, kind of, yeah, that's, uh, uh, just something I thought about while watching this episode. And almost certainly an inspiration, I would assume, given how influential Twilight Zone was. Oh, sure. I think it's also interesting, sort of talking about that aspect of it, that there is a real sense that um, this idea of sort of the feral child isn't really, what, other than um, something, well, other than, uh, you know, it's a good life, isn't really something which in, in 1966 had much of a root in science fiction, but it is very much a part of story storytelling. If you think it's something like uh, Mowgli from the Jungle Book or Romulus and Remus, uh, even Tarzan, like this idea of like the the, the, the sort of feral child who's somehow managed to survive in the wilderness and is being brought into kind of contemporary society is, is, is very much kind of classic storytelling, but it's not generally one which exists in science fiction at this point. Uh, we're going to have to mention um, a, a, a lot of uh, sort of um, gold and silver age science fiction writers when we're talking about the, uh, the original Star Trek as we kind of go through these episodes. But this isn't particularly something which is, is part of the genre at this point. It will go on to be a very big part of the genre. Like teenage geniuses are just going to annoy the hell out of us from now until the crack of doom. But it's not really, and, and like, like Charlie's not a genius. He's he's not like he's not a Wesley. So you know, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest otherwise. But yeah, that whole kind of feral children thing is very much kind of uh, a part of kind of. I don't even want to say adventure fiction. That's probably overstretching it. Although obviously that is the case with with Tarzan, less so. Um, with with the Jungle Book, but it is part of it is part of uh, a genre. And when we think of Star Trek, and we think of the, the the genres that Star Trek kind of grows out of, more often than not, people people will very naturally talk about westerns. But here we see Star Trek kind of pulling on a very kind of different genre tradition, and it's one that I don't think that the original show gets an awful lot of credit for. So it is it's just kind of interesting to see it pulling on these kind of. Um, quite diverse threads um, and trying to integrate them into this sort of cohesive worldview. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny you mentioned the feral child thing, because this is like, in this case, Charlie is very much a feral teenager. Like the first thing that he asks, like one of the first things is, are you a girl? Like this is, uh, I guess, really playing uh, on the um, general horniness of a teenage boy, uh, especially one that I guess has, 
uh, been sheltered from uh, actual society for so long. Um, and I mean, it's kind of interesting that uh, apparently there were no women on the previous ship he was on. Uh, or maybe it's just Kirk's um, uh, Kirk's way to staff the Enterprise with um, with babes, uh, so to speak. Uh, yeah, like it's it's kind of interesting watching him figure try and figure out like what what I suppose his um, you know hormones are telling him to do, uh, but it. It also feels like he didn't learn anything from this other ship that he was on. Like he just comes on there, like, well, what did you do on this other ship? What did, uh, the Atreides was? Was that what it was called? Uh, yeah, the Antares. The Antares. Why Atreides? Sorry, I was talking about Dune earlier today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he was on the Antares, like, uh, what did he learn? Did he just try and like? I I want to know how they managed to get him off of the ship. They don't have, as far as I know, they don't have a Kirk-like figure who is, you know, this uh, larger-than-life uh, captain who can, you know, seemingly make problems uh, go away by sheer force of will. Uh, that's that's the thing that I'm most interested in. Like, how did he... How did he... Uh, how did they get rid of him? There's the line where uh, he says the Caribbean Towers, like, didn't, like, like him a lot. Like, and he mentions that and because of that, he blows up the ship. It's like, well, they were mean to me. But um, I don't know. I guess I guess you just have to believe that he wasn't fully insane when they made the call to, oh, let's transfer him over. Like, he was just going to bide his time and let them die a different way. Um, but he, I guess, likes the Enterprise more than the Antari, so he's not going to kill them. He's just going to have them around as his playthings. But well, he he does repeatedly say that he wants to get to Colony Five. Yeah. So yes. presumably, presumably, he will see the Enterprise as his way of achieving that, which maybe he couldn't have managed. I mean, we don't know anything about the Antares, but like maybe it was a short range craft, or you know, mm. whatever. I don't know. But you know, he he does repeatedly say, "Oh no, I want to go there. That's where I want to go. There's people there." So so maybe we can kind of rationalize it away, saying it it was less that the Antares were able to get rid of him and more that he actively wanted to go somewhere and could use the Enterprise in order to, to achieve that. Do you think that, uh, I mean, you probably know this more than I would, but it seems that, like, the Enterprise is, like, the hip ship. Uh, yeah. Like, when when, <laughs> yes. when when the guys are on, you know, fr- from the Antares are on, uh, you know, they're on the um, they're in the transporter room, and Kirk tries to coax them with uh, entertainment tapes. Uh, like... <laughs> Pard. Yeah, he's like, Hey, uh, you want to <laughs> stay and watch a couple skin flicks? Uh, <laughs> like, and then you have like the like the lounge area where where Spock's playing his space sitar, yeah. and Uhura seems to be singing a song that uh, is completely different from what Spock is laying down. But um, as far as melody goes, uh, it seems that the Enterprise is like it's it's hip, man. Like, <laughs> it's the cool <laughs> ship to be on. I think hip is exactly the word because there's no word more mid sixties than yeah. hip. Uh, yeah, they're they're definitely uh, they're definitely cool cats and 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 uh, yeah, the, the, it's where it's at. I, I think that's definitely definitely true. That whole scene in the in the transporter room, I kind of want to just briefly circle back to that. That whole thing about um, that you mentioned, Alex. That that is is that a girl scene? Is one of those weird. 
time capsule moments in, and there are many of them in this episode but that's one of the it's the first time we have them this weird time capsule where i don't think that scene would ex- have existed five years earlier and i don't think you would get it five years later and it's such a there's so much going on in just those few lines as as like like charlie is uh, like you as you quite correctly said like his hormones are telling him one thing and he's looking at this beautiful lady and all the rest of it and his reaction as as would be you know teenage boys in his place is is that a girl and like like the the adult members of the crew kind of all look at each other and go yep that's what she is whereas of course from a contemporary perspective, no, that's a woman who has an actual role in this ship. Please don't reduce her to being what is essentially a doll. Uh, and and one of the big problems that um, Janice Rand has uh, as a character, uh, well, I say as a character, but actually she doesn't really have a character. She's basically just there to be ogled over. And so it's it, it it's a problem that the show has. And some of this stems from... from um, Gene Roddenberry himself, as anybody will know, Roddenberry was quite obsessed with sex, and he always tried to sort of shoehorn ways of getting it into Star Trek. But it's it like like, and I don't mean this as any disrespect to Grace Lee Whitney, who I think does a really good job with an absolutely nothing part where she basically just has to stand there in increasingly sort of scantily clad um, clothes and 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 sort of pretend that there's a character behind her. Um, but that whole scene is just just weird in the way that she's presented completely unambiguously as this sex object the teenage boy doesn't understand that and doesn't understand what he's saying is wrong even although the audience are meant to get that and then the other men in the room are going yep that's right and it's just i don't know this it's such a like that's that's the that like that 30 second scene is this whole episode in in miniature i mean if we're just going straight to the topic of uh, sexual harassment, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like a topic that definitely uh, we are all very equipped to talk about, I'm sure. And no, I'm being facetious there, but it's, uh, we might as well just get into what we can about it. Um, yeah, it's, I do really like, or not like, but I'm fascinated by the scene where Kirk tries to explain the Charlie and doesn't have the words to explain the Charlie, that he can't just go around grabbing people's asses. It's, yeah. Like, the take I have is, like, if the word consent was in the vocabulary of anyone in the 60s, this would be a much easier episode. (laughs) That's all, Kurt just has to say that word and explain the concept, and, I mean, Charlie could still not agree with it, and we'd still have a conflict. But, you know, it would still, like, it's it's clear the word he's reaching for, and it's the word that Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana, like, don't know, if that makes sense. Which Mm -hmm. I just, again, find so fascinating. And yeah, it's it's as clear as like a lot of forward thinking here. I mean, not not to speak out of line, but maybe because it was written by a woman who's like has maybe experienced this behavior. It's I think interesting that we have this sort of situation where it's like that's not cool, even as it was happening in like offices around America, if like Mad Men or whatever is to be believed. But someone deliberately saying you shouldn't do that. You should treat them with respect, and you can't just make them do what you want. You can't just be like nice to them and expect them to reciprocate. And it's very funny to me. I mean, funny, not haha, but you get it that they 
spend like paragraphs, these characters talking around that word, but they never say the word consent, which is exactly what they're trying to say. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too, in that, uh, uh, I, I didn't think about this honestly until, um, until probably my second rewatch, obviously like, is that, uh, Star Trek, you know, has commentary, right? It's, it's all about the social commentary and, I couldn't for the life of me figure out like what this episode was sort of about, but uh, the fact that like probably 60 to 70% of this episode is about sexual harassment. Like that's probably it. And I, it makes me wonder how many people who watched it at the time took that from this. Um, and, I mean, we'll never know, uh, but it's, it's definitely a, a interesting thought. I honestly can't imagine anyone learning a moral from this because the moral is so muddled. <laughs> I, 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 li- I like to think so, though, of course. I'd like to think someone would listen to Kirk saying, you can't uh, do that to women and touch them in any place without their... I I, I ought to use the same word that they can't use. It's That's the weird thing about it. It's like it the episode itself is so clearly awkward dealing with the concept. Because it just feels like no one has thought this way before in human history. And then that's probably being unfair to people in the 60s and earlier. But I mean, it's it's true. It just feels like it's so awkward doing the concept that it can't really like be very definitive about how awful the behavior it is. So I know I kind of admire that it's definitely um, trying to take a stance on it. And I think it just like culture at large hasn't caught up to the point where this would be something the writers would be aware of how to tackle. Well, I mean, it is very much that thing about the house being divided against itself because it is commendable to have Kirk trying to take that, again, that sort of father figure role and educating, you know, this younger man in in what is and isn't appropriate. But the show can't help but portray Janice Rand as this kind of, you know, sexy character. Like when she's when she's in that um pink robe on the bridge yeah. at the end and when she's in her quarters, I mean, we're lucky that we don't get a wolf whistle over the top of it. You know, it's just it, <laughs> it, it wants to try and be respectful, but at the same time it can't quite interrogate itself enough to see where it's also falling short. And that's the essential conflict um, that the episode can't quite resolve when it comes to dealing with this kind of stuff. And and yeah, like you say, Kev, like, oh, you say, like, all it really takes is for Kirk to say, don't do this. You have to ask her consent. If she says no, that's the end of the story. And he kind of does come out. So he's got that thing. There's a, you know, what's the line? There's a million things in this world that you want and a million things you can't have. And that's not great, but that's just life or words to that effect. And like, like Shatner is good at delivering those. Like, like yeah. even the, co- even the comedy that he's, he's kind of playing it for laughs when he's doing the, well, you just can't, I mean, you know, I mean, but you can't hit a woman, but you know, between a man and a man. Well, that's, that's different, but like, and he's playing it for laughs. He's he's playing up the awkwardness, but he's good at doing that. It's like yeah. a good performance, even if the script is struggling to articulate what it's trying to get across. But you know, like, I think Shatner deserves a lot of praise in this episode for for making it work. It's one of those things that. Um, you know, I think when you talk about the guest star, when you talk about Robert Walker as, as Charlie Evans, and he does give a, a really kind of good, awkward teenage... I mean, he's no way is he a teenager. He's every, every bit as much a teenager as I am at this stage. He's a weird-looking uh, guy. But, you know, <laughs> he is a weird-looking guy, isn't he? But that kind of that works for the episode as well. It, it, you know, it, it, that big kind of head he's got, and there is something a bit 
peculiar about the way he looks and that helps to reinforce the sort of uncanny nature of the character but you know he's giving a really good performance and his is the the big kind of keynote thing but Shatner is doing good work here I think like even the slight like the the awkwardness of that scene is one thing the awkwardness of the scene in the gym is a whole (laughs) different story Shatner and red tights and this whole thing about oh wow that's but I still like I think he's I think he's giving a really good performance. I kind of admire Shatner in this episode. Does he? Does uh, Kirk normally take the role of a father? I mean, a father figure, like, or, or rather, how often does Kirk take the role of a father figure in the original series? As someone who's only seen two episodes, not as directly as he does in this. This is probably the most direct we get to see him actually be a father figure. But but he is obviously he's the authority figure. He is the one that will come in and. And, you know, just in heavy inverted commas, sort stuff out. Um, so it's, it's, it is part of his character, but it's unusual to see it addressed in quite such a direct fashion. We'll, we'll talk about this again, Kevin and I, when we get to the episode of Miri, which is, uh, I'm sure everybody knows listening, but, you know, basically a planet full of um, pubescent children uh, who uh, ha- who okay. have no adults to look after them. So much to look forward to in that discussion. Uh, so it will come up again, but it's not it's not a frequent thing. So it's it's unusual to see to see him portrayed in in quite such a, a paternal light. I I just wanted to say that I mean off of Kirk's performance, Shatner's performance rather being great. I mean, there's a lot of great performances in this. I also just like they're in more backgrounded roles, but I mean. He's still got uh, Nimoy and uh, DeForest Kelly, just great sort of sounding words for Kirk. I think, I mean, it's not unusual that it took this long. It's only episode three that we're covering and the second episode that feature McCoy. But uh, I think more so than the man trap, this is like our first real, like it's the three of them, id, ego, super ego, just talking things out. Is that a fair statement to say? I understand it's like a big part of the show. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's completely fair. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, I really like how, I like how, uh, McCoy's uses this like sounding board for Kirk in this, just like trying to take, ease him into taking the empathetic route. Again, one of those like three solutions, the episodes they don't wind up taking. Uh, but still, I don't know. And I also really like Kirk trying to pass the buck to back to McCoy. I thought that was a very funny moment. And again, well played by Shatner, the comedy of it. Uh, I just interesting to have like this paternal figure of the ship um uncomfortable taking a directly paternal paternal role with Charlie but he tries his best I guess yeah with with kind of with future knowledge you wonder if that plays into the whole um David thing and in, in Wrath of Khan but I don't want to overreach yeah. so you know we, we don't even know if David's alive at this stage we don't even know if that's happened yet but uh yeah it, it, if you want to kind of fan wank around it you could say like he's directly uncomfortable with with like a father figure role because he's aware of the fact that he's an absent father. Maybe maybe this what maybe like 20, 25 years between this and and Wrath of Khan in terms of actual screen time. So I guess David's about that age, maybe twenty five. So maybe maybe it's around this time he meets Carol Marcus. So if you really want to go down that particular rabbit hole, I suppose you could do. But um, but I'm not going to. So <laughs> but it's interesting to speculate. All right, I guess since that topic has run dry, um, I'm just looking through my notes right now. The lighting is really good in this episode. Just that's more of a quick note, but like especially the scene in the gym where he and Charlie are squaring off, and you have like 
I don't know what the correct term is, just the eye lights on them. Maybe that is the correct term, the eye lights. And you have like letterbox lighting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that is just very striking. I think I like a lot about how Star Trek is almost like stage like in nature. That same scene you have Charlie blasting people back with Psychic Force, and the way it's depicted is two red shirts running up to him and then doing like little mime falls backwards. It's fun, it's ineffective. I mean, you almost wish that TV could let itself be that campy still these days, you know? We can only, uh, can do we can a only wish budget. at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and speaking of a budget, I think this is our first episode where it, it all takes place in an Enterprise, a classic bottle episode. Would you consider that a bottle episode, though, if it just if it takes place on different areas of the Enterprise? I guess it depends on if the rec room and Janice's room were had to be built for the episode or not. Mm. I guess uh, I guess I'm so used to watching TNG where a bulk of the episodes take place on solely the Enterprise. Uh, I do forget that TOS they often go off world or I'm or off ship rather. I think uh, I had Memory Alpha and had a stat pulled up. I think there's only one of like six or eight. I'll try to find it again. But um, yeah, it's not that many that take place just on the ship when I was seeing. Oh yeah, first of six original series episodes that take place entirely aboard the Enterprise. Without thinking of it, I can name two others. That's a bit tragic. Um, anyway, <laughs> God, I need to get out more. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's good though. I like the fact that we don't have any any planets. I like the fact that it's a bottle episode because I do think it helps to sort of raise the stakes. It raises the pressure. Um, just, just in sort of, sort of relatively, um, not subtle, but it underscores the fact that they're really kind of just out there by themselves. Like there isn't a planet they can beam him down to, to get rid of him. Um, there isn't, a you know, star base nearby where they can call for reinforcements. They have to solve this problem. Otherwise, it's game over. And I, so I, I think I think the sort of bottle episode, if we want to call it that, nature of, of this episode does help to up the ante a bit. It does increase the tension. I, I completely agree. I think they're just trapped with him. They can't, like, unlike the man trap, they can't just, like, take him down to the planet and then, or where no man has gone before is an even better example. Uh, just take him down to the planet and then have Kirk, like, throw rocks at him or whatever. <laughs> you gotta deal with it on the ship. Um, Polystyrene rocks, let's, let's be clear. <laughs> I uh, I kind of want to uh, circle back to uh, Robert Walker's performance as Charlie. Um, we got to talk about his face, right? The eyes. Yeah. Like the weird eye, <laughs> eye thing that he does. Uh, I think if you look at, like, if you just type in Charlie X into, into Google Images, like that's the first thing that'll come up is his like weird like i'm using my powers face uh like i i it's a really fun choice i completely agree i i wonder i wish i had time to actually rewatch the twilight as an episode before this so i could draw more parallels but i think that kid the bill mummy kid also does the same a similar at least kind of thing mm. to using his powers it's just i mean not to explain i think it's like it's a great shorthand yeah and i think it's effective for using it i really like it <laughs> and i think robert walker specifically pulls that face off really well i also think that uh his his acting style is definitely of that era whenever he yells it sounds like he's uh jimmy stewart he's like everything i know is wrong <laughs> i'm hungry all over it's very like uh, it's very jimmy stewart i laughed every time he yelled something <laughs> Yeah, I can't say it's like a hundred accurate depiction of a teen, but <laughs> I do think Fontana is getting at something like very elemental here, where it's just like 
yeah, these people have irrational emotions. And they even discuss it in episode where it's like, he has these adult, more than adult powers, but this kid body, we can't trust him for that reason. And I don't know, it's just the general distrust of teenagers. I find uh, pretty uh, entertaining in this episode overall. And I mean, not inaccurate. It's I certainly don't like who I was as a teenager. And I'm that's a very relatable emotion you guys are much closer to being teenagers than i am <laughs> i'm greatly re- i'm greatly relieved that i have more distance from my teenage uh... years oh they were not good but uh yeah no i mean i think you're right I, I i do think that's the thing and i think that um playing that alongside his sort of social ignorance i think is is a smart choice as well you know the idea that he has grown up in isolation and that everything he knows comes from sort of memory tapes on this crashed ship so if he was, you know, left abandoned and alone on this planet from, I think they say he was three or something when the ship crashed mm. and he was the only survivor. Um, so during all that time, yeah, he, he hasn't had any kind of uh, exposure. In fact, I, you'll have to excuse me if you already know this, but that's actually where the title comes from. The, the, um, the X in Charlie X is supposed to be... Now, I think this is a reach. You guys can tell me if, if it's wrong. Um, but it's meant to be uh, like if you watch like an old timey Western and somebody has to uh, like sign their name, but they're illiterate, they write an X. Uh-huh. And so that the Charlie X, the X and Charlie X is meant to be like an indicator that he he is uh, he's uneducated, but he's socially uneducated rather than being sort of academically uneducated and and that's where the x is meant to is is meant to sort of symbolically represent because i think i think the original title was the day charlie became god uh wow. which i'm really glad that wasn't the title that we ended up with i think charlie x is way more effective but that's what the x yeah. is supposed to symbolize it, it's that it's that it's that ignorance it's the fact that he's not being educated in the ways of the world if, if we're making it these days it'd be charlie doe yeah I, yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly it, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, I think it's a great idea. It's funny that like he doesn't like it, yeah. The day Charlie became God or whatever. That's if he if the episode were to accurately be titled that he'd have to go like full Q, um, yeah, right. and and really mess mess stuff up. Uh, like he kind of gives everybody he, agency still most for the most part at the end uh, or towards the end. They're just sort of being held hostage. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's sort of how like you want things to go up to 11 right away so you have more stakes a more compelling story um but you know this is only the what second or third episode so i feel like still trying to they're still trying to find their their sea legs in terms of you know what makes a really compelling episode of this show uh, interestingly song and dance numbers are unlikely to be much of a feature going forward <laughs> Aww. So so Uhura Honestly, honestly, I love Nichelle Nichols in this episode. Yeah. I don't want to suggest otherwise. She does such a good job with with what is at best hacky material. Yeah. And oh, um, no. like she's doing all that singing, she's dancing around Spock. Spock does not look unhappy to have Nichelle Nichols dancing around him. He is very happy in that situation. And she is such a trooper. Like the whole Charlie is my darling thing, yeah. and and yeah, twas on the starship Enterprise. Like she is, she is great in this episode. Her musical improv game is strong. Uh, <laughs> essentially, she's basically just being a really good uh, wingman for Charlie. She's like, hey, he's a pretty cool kid, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Look at his cool card tricks. Um, 
gonna turn yeah. one to a black lotus next <laughs> um i was just gonna say that yeah i agree the song isn't a great song i just love them hanging around as a vibe yeah it's like, a good vibe I, I yeah yeah like, absolutely I'm, like you said, it's the hippest ship in the fleet. It's I feel like that's just I don't know. You want a scene where they're just like hanging around, having fun with each other, because that just makes you want to tune back into your TV friends next week. I mean, I feel like that's something almost missing from a lot of modern television is uh, just characters hanging out and being nice to each other. I'd like to think that Leonard Nimoy was noodling around like on a guitar during the filming of Star Trek and came up with that Hobbit song. Yeah, about to say exactly the Bilbo song. Same thing about Bilbo Baggins. Yeah, uh, you mentioned. Yeah, you can't 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 go wrong with a bit of Bilbo. No, no, not not at all. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned like the title of the episode, Charlie X. That I, I uh, alluded earlier to to X Men, and uh, the reason like uh, my correlation was like, oh, Charlie X, Charlie Xavier, Charles Xavier. He has psychic powers. Like that was that was sort of where my mind went uh, at this point. The X-Men comics were had been going for three years, but I don't see how, like, I, I think there would have been documentation of that um, if that were an actual bit of trivia, uh, the X-Men uh, correlation. Yeah, I I think it might just be coincidental. I mean... Really weird coincidence. Yeah, really weird coincidence for sure, but I think, like, I JG's theory about it just being, like, a Western reference just tracks for the 60s okay oh. x-men's been going on for six three years at this 100 percent. yeah and westerns like uh, that western bubble i don't think had burst yet no i mean dc fontano just looked pulled her up earlier and she writes for bonanza after star trek oh wow that's yeah that's no coincidence yeah well i think though it's worth mentioning that that kind of idea was kind of uh, the, i sorry let me make that clearer the idea of kind of um children adolescents who have these kind of power was a bit zeitgeisty like you've mentioned um x-men and obviously that's like the biggest derivation of it um but spider-man kicks off at this time as well um and you get a lot of that kind of stuff coming through the the sort of the comics of the 60s where you have um you know kids or adolescents who who kind of gain these powers um and so in some ways charlie x is kind of an inversion of that i mean especially in those kind of early like x-men and and spider-man comics you know ultimately those characters always kind of come down on the side of good or come down on the side of righteousness or you know they become capital s superheroes here we kind of have that inversion where charlie never really becomes a good guy the only time he ever sort of shows any sort of remorse is when he's already aware that he's lost the game you know his 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 parents have turned up essentially to ground him and and you know that's that is very much what the the the, the this is appearing at the end of this episode is if we're following through with like the wayward teenager or like the rebellious kid like it's definitely just his parents sending him to his bedroom at the end of the at the end of the episode um but it is something which was sort of around in like again maybe zeitgeist is too strong but it's certainly something that would have been they would have been aware of certainly dc fontana and gene roddenberry would have been aware of um and you know stan lee was starting to get that kind of momentum off the ground so yeah it was it was definitely there I want to know what was on those tapes um, he crashed with <laughs> because uh, he starts making Spock spout uh, uh, the tiger by William Blake. Uh, one of the, yeah. I'm no, I'm no, yeah. po- I'm no, you know, uh, English major, but 
Um, I do know Tiger Tiger burning bright in the forest of the night. That's, you know, pretty, uh, as far as Spider-Man goes, it's very important because uh, that's the, like, that entire poem is a framing device for uh, Craven's Last Hunt, which is my personal favorite Spider-Man story. Um, and uh, I, I, he also makes him spout some other poetry too. And I do wonder, like, uh, how old are these tapes? Like, because, yeah. right? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I the Raven is the other poem. Yes, that's right. Um, Thank you. I don't know why I didn't write down the Raven. That was the most obvious one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes, uh, it's. I I think that's a great moment. I think Nimoy plays it so well, and I think like interjecting poetry to be creepy. It's a fun idea. But yeah, I don't know how Charlie knows about the poetry. Uh, unless like that one Simpsons Treehouse of Horror with the Raven was on one of those tapes. <laughs> maybe he was, um, maybe it was coming from Spock's unconscious or subconscious rather. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he crashed with a really uh, big cache of like big Finnish audios and he was forced to listen to the Eighth Doctor Adventures. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. That's... <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. I, that's a really obscure reference back to the podcast we used to do. We'll, we'll quietly draw a line through that and move on. I mean, you're you're talking to a person who uh, I've listened to pretty much all the um, uh, the Eighth Doctor adventures. So uh, yeah, I I'm very upset. I learned this after we had already like, locked in our final episodes of our audio Doctor Who audio podcast. Yeah, I went on a huge Eighth Doctor kick like uh, about like ten years ago. Yeah. So I know what you're talking about. Uh, I, yeah, just uh, ships passing in the night, uh, but glad we could have you on this one. Um, yeah, if there's nothing else with the episode itself, I just have one more thing to bring up, which is I discovered that there is, I mean, this topic will probably come out a lot, fan series of Star Trek. And in 2006, uh, fans somehow got a hold of Walter Koenig and Michelle Nichols to shoot Star Trek of Gods and Men, the 40 years later sequel to this episode specifically right so i've actually seen that oh um yeah but we might have to do a whole separate episode on it it's interesting Uh, well we don't have to um i mean if you're particularly interested in star trek ephemera um it's it's Uh, out there and um and yeah like like nichelle nicole's and 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 walter connick turn up and they do their thing i think the way that they were able to get them and i don't mean to sound disrespectful was money and it's it's as good a fan-made production as you could um possibly hope for if you uh, uh, just for a point of comparison for for sort of kevin and i if you if you think there were like a bunch of doctor who um fan made stuff in like the 80s uh, sorry the early 90s um the probe series and and the stranger and all that like it's, it's considerably better than all that kind of stuff but it's not it's not super brilliant <laughs> it's it's as good as you could possibly hope for given that it's a, a really fun thing that's been put together by fans i'm not down on it at all i think the actual achievement is fantastic and i i love that fans were were passionate enough to do it if it's not the best star trek you've ever seen that's fine but it's it's like it's joyful and charming and absolutely lovely i i hear the word fan made like like film fan fiction like that and my eyebrows instinctually raise but maybe that's um (laughs) prejudice to me uh, I, Alan Ruck? I'm sorry, I just noticed that Alan <laughs> Ruck is in this. Oh, yeah! <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, the con heads must be all over that, Ben. Yeah, they should bring that up in succession. Oh, man, what a... 
I mean, I, I mean, I guess plenty of people have like ups and downs in their careers and what have you, but it's, that is pretty crazy that he was like a huge actor in the eighties and nineties in the two thousands. He's in a star Trek fan series and in 2020s, he is in one of the biggest shows on TV. Anyways. Uh, I think if we're going to Alan Ruck, I think it's time for us to ring out the last any points anyone has. I'm I'm done. I think I'm good. Let's see here. I'm I'm glad that you guys enjoyed this a bit more than I did. Uh, it's, it's I still wish I warmed to this episode. I still I find it I find it's weird sort of um, imbalance just never quite sits right with me, and I don't know. I, I I honestly really wanted to come back. I haven't seen this episode in like. Oh, probably fifteen years or something. Um, back back when um dinosaurs roamed the earth, I used to have this on a VHS cassette. When they used to get two episodes per VHS cassette, uh, back in the mid eighties, I guess. Uh, and it was this and the Man Trap, which is quite the quite the two hander. And I just never really, I don't know, I just never really kind of found a way to get on board in this so i was kind of looking forward to revisiting this one as as something that i know is generally quite well regarded and and hoping that i would fall for it i just i just feel there's like one too many things in it that really for it to really be elevated up to kind of like top tier star trek i think it's mid-tier i don't think it's a disaster and i think you can tell that you know like it's so early on in the show's run of course they're still figuring out the kinks in the system that's that's absolutely true and i you know i am making allowances for that but you know yeah you know i'm not over the moon about it either if i were like slap a number on like seven out of ten i I think part of it is just like, I'm just excited watching Star Trek. It's just so different from any other show I'm currently watching. And yeah, I, it's just, it, even like the littlest things still fascinate. I think that uh, if I'm comparing it to a TNG episode, I don't think it touchy, touches even like, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I Season one's not great. But um, the, <laughs> the, thing, the thing about this episode is that it's really uneven. Um, it, you don't follow, I think, what are the more interesting parts of it uh we we see more of his shenanigans and they're not even great shenanigans they're uh he like like i said he could go full full q he could go really like like he can really take over the ship if he wanted to and i think that would make for a much more compelling uh episode we could learn a little bit more about the thasians um and and my point i guess i i really wanted to ask is um do the thasians appear ever again in star trek like is are they touched on as 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 a as a as a race ever again after this? Because it seems that they're this weird I don't know this weird uh, ethereal anomaly that I I, I certainly where I am in uh, TNG they have not been mentioned once. So this is just a curiosity that I have. So the answer to that question is no. We will never hear of the Thasians again, unless you're a student of history, because the Thasian Rebellion was a thing in around 500 BC, um, which is why the name Thasian sounds incredibly Greek, because oh. it is. Wow. Um, so yeah, no, it, that doesn't in any way relate to the episode, which makes it a really weird thing. Normally, when you would like pull a name from history, you would think, oh, 
Well, that's going to relate to it because, I don't know, maybe maybe in 500 BC they had really annoying teenagers or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's no connection at all that I can, I can, I, I can, uh, I can make between the Thasian Rebellion and, and this episode. Um, but it was all, it was to do with like, um, like Sparta and, and there's lots of sieges and stuff going on. And, you know, just general sort of, you know, classical history stuff. Um, but the Thasians themselves will never come up. Again, there is a tiny little point because I'm just unspeakably awful as a nerd um, but that I have to make. There's two things in this episode um, which bug me and it's not the fault of the episode, it's the fault of the remastering. Now, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you guys have either probably like watched this on like Netflix or something or so you've probably seen the version with the, the CGI uh, rather than the original special effects. Uh, there's two things. Firstly, we never see the Antares in the original episode. They were meant to do a model shoot for it and basically just ran out of time. So the Antares that we see in this episode wasn't part of the original broadcast. It's something that they've dropped in. And the, the Thasian ship right at the end of the episode, which is this sort of sort of elongated sort of series of green tubes or whatever it is, like the CGI thing. Like that was literally just a green blob. That like it might as well have been a bit of spearmint chewing gum stuck to the screen. That's <laughs> that's all it was and that's all it was in the original. But but in the CGI kind of remaster version, for some reason they've done away with that and uh, well, I mean the reason is obvious because the original looked terrible. But like for all they pay so much attention in the remastered versions to paying fealty to the original effects and trying to stay true. And yet, for some reason, when it came to the Thasian ship, uh, they completely abandoned that. So instead of having... They, it, it kind of it was a sort of green thing that sort of rippled in the same way that the floating head sort of ripples. Uh, but they've done away with that and they've given it that sort of long, green, elongated tube thing. Um, so I would be remiss as an unspeakably awful Star Trek nerd if I didn't sort of point those two things out. So now I have. I'm looking at the pictures now, and I'm of two minds. I mean, on the other hand, I hate like not preserving original effects, leave it as it is, etc. Yeah. But I am looking at this original Thasian ship, and it's like can't even really tell it's a ship. It does look like a lens flare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think maybe that's sort of intentional because what we see of the you know Charlie's father figure, um, his guardian, uh, kind of a kind of ethereal, kind of like a green ghost. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it was supposed to be uh, initially something more supernatural or more out, really out of this world than just, oh, look at this uh, holographic ship. Uh, yeah, um, just because I his, his powers, I think, are very, um, they're more, they seem more magic or sorcery based than uh, than what you would sort of equate to. Uh, early Star Trek, right? And just science. I, I mean, you know more than I would about this, but the general uh, consensus seems to have been that Star Trek is always like, oh well, hard science is sort of like the first, the first thing that. Uh, um, sorry, edit. <laughs> science is sort of the at the forefront of Star Trek versus um, sorcery and magic. But that's only what I've come to uh, assume at this point. Um, so really, it's it's more of a question of uh, how often does this type of thing happen in TOS? I mean, it happens a lot. 
Uh, actually, a lot. <laughs> but one of the things I quite really, really inescapable might be the word. Uh, but one of the things I kind of like, this is a bit of an overread for this particular episode, but if you sort of let me run with it, it I think it works as a broader sense of the, the, the whole kind of series, is that I think it's... I like the sense that the, there is a universe out there which isn't just like Klingons and Romulans and humans and Vulcans. It's like there are civilizations which have risen and fallen. There are, you know, empires which are already dust by the time that we kind of take our first step out into the into the larger universe. There are these creatures who, you know, let... I think the Thasian has a line, something like, oh, I've chosen to make myself look like I did hundreds of years ago. As if, like, the human form is kind of trivial, but we'll go back to it for your sake, I guess. That, that's, it's, they're throwaway details. They're not, there's no emphasis on them. There's nothing is specifically world-building. It's not trying to draw a bigger picture, but I think you can still infer a lot from it. And I kind of like that. I like the idea that, like, the, there's that very brief conversation about oh early on in the episode oh i thought the thasians were extinct i think kirk says and then mccoy and then uh, sorry spock says oh they must exist because there's no other way that charlie could possibly be alive and it's just those tiny little things that imply this kind of universe where there are we know that there are civilizations that have been in god like um alex you said like you've seen city in the edge of forever um, that's exactly the same thing. There's this desolate planet full of ancient ruins that their civilization is clearly gone for millennia or longer and there's nothing left. But that's not in and of itself an unusual thing for them to discover. We have lots of dead civilizations and, and humanity is quite young in the way that it sort of steps out into the stars. We're, we're new at this, whereas there are all these other creatures who have been there, seen that, done it. I, I like that fact. I, I think it makes the universe a bigger and a more interesting place. So I I, I want to apologize also for <laughs> generalizing that Star Trek is all uh, like, you know, hard science stuff. Uh, that's sort of just... Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a mentality that I used to have as a Star Wars fan. And even uh, going through all of TNG, where, you know, Q is a, a presence in practically every season... Um, and you know wormholes and 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 the like. Uh, you know, I just I, I always assumed that that TOS um, was sort of the one that was the most uh, grounded in science, I guess, so to speak. Um, <laughs> just because of the whole like, oh well, we're gonna go explore new worlds, and you know, we're gonna use our ships to go here or there. And um, the idea of something so supernatural didn't really uh, occur to me as something that would be in the show for. Uh, like that uh, sort of proximity. So uh, uh, thank you for indulging me. I mean, <laughs> I, I have only seen two episodes of TOS after all. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're not wrong. When, when Kevin and I were talking about um, Where No Man Has Gone Before, the, the second pilot, I mean, like what you said is exactly correct because they just refer to ESP offhandedly as a thing that exists. Oh yeah, like there's these people, and they've got really weird perceptive powers, and um, and we've even got like the scale that we can we can rate them on and chart them, espers and all this kind of stuff, and it's just it's just very casually kind of dropped in as if we're just supposed to go along with it. Oh yeah, like there's all these people with like ESP, um, but it's meant to sit in exactly the same universe as you know like spaceships and laser guns and 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 warp speed and all all this kind of stuff. So it, I mean yeah, you're absolutely right to sort of draw attention to it. it. It is that kind of weird blend of 
science fiction and fantasy that that Toss plays with. And again, yeah, even with Q, like it's not the same. By the time we get to the nineteen eighties, science fiction doesn't function like this anymore at all. That weird blend of um, of fantasy and or even fairy st- fairy to- fairy stories really. And, and science fiction just doesn't exist. It's absolutely a core thing that something like, say, The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits does. Star Trek does it to a certain extent. And then there's a very clear line, which is basically 1970, where that just stops being the case. Yeah, I I guess I never really put uh, Charlie's power to turn people into iguana as like an ESP type thing. Uh, so that correlation, just I just didn't, I didn't even think about it like that because, you know, obviously Troy is an empath and we have many like mental powers uh, in, you know, in TNG and, and beyond. So it's not something that I really had considered uh, like, <laughs> like turning somebody into an iguana is, is more of a cute thing to me uh, than it is. <laughs> so I, I was, I guess, the long and short of it and, you know, long walk off a short pier, very shocked to see in TOS. <laughs> I, but this is also like an airing order, like right before the second pilot where no man has gone before, which also is just like guy gets crazy psychic powers and goes a little bit insane. And that's probably why I think this episode kind of suffers in comparison to that mm. episode, even if it's tackling sort of different themes. At one point, Charlie uh, disappears all the phasers on the ship. So maybe Charlie being on the Enterprise is a good thing. Uh, Charlie successfully enacted gun control. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only for america we had a charlie x i can't believe i'm saying that but <laughs> um and then and then my final point is just i really like the abrupt ending to this episode i think like charlie was whisked away and everyone was just left uh with with rand literally in her sort of uh night robe just like on the bridge and like what just happened cut to credits it's i don't know it's very effective in a very sort of like old school pulp way of just, all right, we're in, we're out. Um, I'm watching a lot of Sam Raimi films recently because of the new Doctor Strange and because of Blank Check. Uh, that it's a skill he uses a lot as well. That's what's on my mind. And in the spirit of abrupt endings. That probably means that we can move over to recommendations. Yeah. Wow, that was seamless. Look, look at the <laughs> professionalism we have now. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, firstly, I, I want to say that I agree. Um, I do think the fact that we don't get a tag scene or a comedy line at the end works very effectively. Um, but secondly, I think we can also just leave this episode there for now and move over to our recommendations. So, Alex, you're our guest. So what have you got to recommend for us this week? Well, uh, I almost always recommend this. Um, everybody should read One Piece. Uh, <laughs> One Piece is uh, a it's a manga uh, for those who are, uh, you know, to the, to the layperson, a manga is a Japanese comic. Uh, and it is read uh, right to left rather than left to right. Uh, and you, you will note this uh, if you read it um, on the Shonen Jump app, uh, which is a great app that gives you access to um, all of uh, the manga magazine Shonen Jump's uh, entire back catalog. Uh, Shonen Jump is where One Piece is published. And uh, to whet your appetite uh, as to one, what exactly One Piece is, aside from uh, the arguably most popular manga series uh in japan of the last 20 years uh it's about uh essentially pirates um but pirates with superpowers uh the main character has eaten a special uh fruit or rather a cursed fruit called the devil fruit uh, it gives him rubber uh 
rubber stretchy powers. Um, but on the same token, it also takes away his ability to swim. And uh, over the course of, um, as of now, 1,052 chapters, um, uh, he meets uh, a whole pirate crew along the way. There's really great world building. Um, and, and the world building to me is, is really the, the, the keystone of what makes this series great. Um, every uh, region that they go to has its own flora and fauna and political scruples. And um, there's uh, inherent mysteries along the way that have yet to be revealed. So um, I, I really recommend One Piece to anybody who enjoys uh, uh, reading comics, really. Um, of course, uh, you know, it's um, very, uh, as far as uh, as it goes, you know, uh, it's a 20-year-old comic, so I, I do feel like there are uh, uh, certain things in it that um, maybe haven't aged too great, uh, but at the forefront of it all, it's a very uh, a very great read. Um, there's an anime series, too, for those of you who don't like to read comics, um, which I recommend watching up until maybe, I don't know, episode uh, 300, let's say, um, because there's like a thousand episodes of it, and that's really a lot to watch so um yeah read one piece it's great yeah i i've been i've been watching one piece and i understand the issues uh once you get past a certain point the pacing gets really off and they start including like extra scenes to, so they're not getting ahead of the comic book which covers less material and then they have for one episode etc uh, but i've been watching it because my friend dak i'll just plug his side project here uh he does a podcast called piece together with two of his friends where they watch four to five episodes a week currently on hiatus, but I was watching along with him and at his pace for his podcast. Um, and I've loved it, even though I haven't watched it in a while now. I, it's, it is such a great um, series, no matter whether you read or watch it. Uh, the world building, like you said, is fantastic. Hundreds of characters, and you'll love pretty much all of them. All very unique and fascinating. Uh, the It is... I get it. It's the thousands of chapters and episodes released so far. It's a daunting task, but I don't know. It really does feel like one of the great works of fiction of this like generation. It's, it's a defining thing. And I, I just start episode one or chapter one, take it a bit of a time. Like I was saying, I was doing four to five a week. That's a good pace. Just work it through whatever pace works for you. And accept it will take, a, um, unless you're a maniac, it will take a couple years at least to get through it all. But you'll have a great time doing it, I ensure you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not going anywhere. That's what I tell people. They're like, oh, but it's so long. I'm like, yeah, it, but it's not going anywhere. It's fine. You'll just read it and enjoy it. And that's all. <laughs> you, you know, honestly, if you keep up week to week, that just makes it harder. Um, because then you have to wait another week for the next 20 or so pages to come out. And it's uh, it sometimes is, is very grueling. So. And then, as for myself, I'm going to recommend a TV show that has run much shorter, but is still no less fantastic. Uh, I'm going to recommend For All Mankind on Apple TV+. It's uh, created and written by someone who might be a familiar name in about a decade or so of doing this podcast, uh, Ronald D. Moore. Uh, he has created this show about an alternate history about the space race. God, I almost don't want to even spoil the first scene of how it's an alternate history because it's so effective. But just know if you watch that first scene, you will be hooked um, and you'll understand how history has altered in an 
irrecoverable way. I'm sorry, I mangled that word. But uh, it does take a little while to get going after that. I think the first two episodes are mostly set up in that annoying modern streaming TV way. And then episode three is the first one that feels like a proper episode of television where there's like a beginning and an end and stakes and you finally start remembering the characters' names. I think once you get over that three episode hump, you'll just have a blast. Um, first episode is really good. Second, first season is really good. Second season is really great. The third season is at the time of the recording. Just started when you get to this episode uh, on your feeds, it'll probably have gotten a good ways in. And that beginning of the third season has just been fantastic. Uh, maybe it's gone off the rails by the time you hear this, but hopefully not of the Priya reviews or anything to go by. Uh, they also like do these big time jumps. The season one is in the 60s, season two, late 60s, or 70s rather. Uh, season two is mostly the 80s and season nine, season three has started in the early 90s. And they've expanded from traveling to the moon more frequently to building a moon base to now they're on planning expedition to Mars. And I mean, that just tells you like how much history has changed and the other ways history has changed is fantastic. Um, it's a very diverse cast, which is explained in universe why that would be the case for NASA in a way that feels like very clever and consistent without being overbearing of, yeah, we can't just have this all be white men. Uh, said characters are incredible. I love them all. They're so well written. The dialogue in this show is just sparkling and it's just, just the dra the drama it brings its characters into is so well grounded. It's just like such a nuts and bolts meat and potatoes TV show. It harkens back to like those prestige days of like AMC shows and FX shows where it's just like right before like a current streaming era where things felt more like blobby and miniseries that should have been movies. This is this just feels like the proper prestige television of just like 10 years ago. Um, which feels weird to be nostalgic for an era of television of that was only 10 years ago, but I guess that's how fast culture is moving these days. It's fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough for all mankind on Apple TV+. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I, I, it's also slightly weird to um, be doing a podcast to have somebody recommend something like um, One Touch and uh, comment on the sort of vast amount of material to two Doctor Who fans um, who, have, who have consumed so much material that it, it, it positively beggars belief. I mean, I um, guess that but makes it's, sense. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do forget. Yeah, we are... We, <laughs> yeah um but i don't mean that as a criticism at all that's fantastic and um yeah i, I i've 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 need to go back to for all mankind as well because I, I watched it and then stopped and i really need to go back and and get stuck back into it again but fantastic thank you, you very much yeah. sorry? <laughs> sorry uh end of season one stop? i stopped at the end of season oh, okay. one so oh, I, I, uh, along, oh along with my apple uh, apple tv subscription oh. <laughs> so i mean uh, Apple, there's enough good Apple shows at this point. You can just subscribe to it, I feel like. Like, I understand yeah. the, oh, I'll get a free trial, watch everything I want to and leave approach. I think now they're consistent enough putting out great shows um, that, yeah, you just just keep with it at this point. I am, like, I, I just got to get around to Severance, but I Ted Lasso and Schmigadoon, I love. I love um, Mythic Quest is another great sitcom. Uh, yeah, there's, and I need to catch up with Severance. There's just so many great Apple shows. Severance right is awesome. Now. Severance is yeah. really good. I've I've seen that um, with a friend, and Severance is just just awesome. So, so uh, that gets a very quick recommendation for me. Um, I'm going to do um, my recommendation, which feels a little slight next to both of those, but um, I'm going to recommend the sitcom Girls Five Ever. 
Um, because it's just such a delight. It's such a lovely show. It's just, as, as of time of recording, it's just concluded its second season. Uh, it's uh, executive produced by Tina Fey. It's uh, just a charming, lovely story. It's about a, a girl group who had one hit in the 90s and who kind of come to popularity again because they're uh, sampled on a, a hip-hop track. Um, and so they're trying to kind of get their career back back on track again and i know that sounds corny it kind of is but that's also its charm it's just this delightful happy little show uh it it's uh very positive it's very kind of up um i don't want to do a ted lasso comparison but it's 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 got that kind of energy to it or that kind of vibe to it um, the core cast are absolutely fantastic, but particularly uh, Paula Pell as, as Gloria is just like very much the MVP, even though she's not often the focus. Um, Buzzy Phillips does great work playing a sort of dumb blonde sort of Barbie character. It's just like everybody is phenomenal in, in this show. And it's just, it's charming. It's delightful. It's extremely funny. Um, the musical numbers in it. It's not a musical. You can tell it's not a musical because I'm watching it. And as is well known, I despise musicals. Um, but there are musical numbers in it. They are extraordinarily well observed and funny. Rarely again the focus. They're, often it's not throwaway gags. But just, just really well put together. Uh, like even the even the opening title, which is like the, the group's big hit, is kind of really well observed and that kind of slightly facile you know kind of girl power nonsense um that's trying to be clever and not quite as clever as it thinks it is but it's also like really easy to buy into it and and all the rest it's just a, a lovely little thing it, it's so well observed there's lots of visual gags in it lots of little throwaway moments it's utterly charming and delightful and i I thoroughly love it. So yeah, that's that's Girls Five Ever. I, I haven't mean check it out. I mean the Busy Phillips, Paula Pell, Renee's Goldsberry are all actors I really like. Oh and Sarah Burroughs, that's the other one. Okay. I forgot I didn't know she was in it, but uh yeah, I, that's yeah, it's such a great cast and it sounds like a fun concept. It sounds very like almost a little crazy ex girlfriend esque, which I mean I think you would like less because it's more of a proper musical crazy girlfriend, but the mixing of comedy and music is something I always enjoy. No problem. And we can probably leave it there for now and move on to plugs. Alex, what would you like to plug? Well, let's see. You can uh, find me where uh, I'm exploring new worlds and going boldly where no one has gone before on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at dude exclamation, all one word, no spaces. And you can hear me uh, if you really enjoyed my voice uh, practically every week on the One Piece podcast. Uh Kind of weird that I was uh, plugging the thing that I podcast about under recommendations, but uh, really it's a wonderful series. Uh, we've been doing the podcast for, um, I don't know, uh, since 2009, however long that is. And uh, we never miss a week, really. And um, if you like Simpsons references, we got them. So uh, I, we're, we usually cover uh, what happened recently on the manga and the anime every week, and we take listener questions. So uh, I highly recommend uh, listening to the podcast once you get caught up uh, or you can, you know, just <laughs> wing it and not. Um, and uh, if you like Japanese films, uh, I have a podcast that I do with my co-hosts, uh, Joey and V called Toho Yaro. Uh, it was a uh, 
bi-weekly and monthly podcast. It's now on hiatus, but uh, please, um, we have a, a huge backlog of episodes to um, to check out. So uh, please check out that podcast that I am on as well. Oh, uh, and I guess if you want to hit either Twitter handle up, it's at One Piece Podcast and at Toho Yaro. That's T-O-H-O-Y-A-R-O. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And uh, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTrekToYou. Our email is TalkingTrekToYou at gmail.com for listener questions. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. Uh, I also am a frequent guest on the podcast Total Massacre, Rowan Kaiser's podcast about action movies. You can find more JG's writings at www.jgmccrory.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. And then he, his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew Deacon go Beatles song by song. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. I feel like I'm missing something, but I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's everything. That's everything. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Alex, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was a delight. So we will leave it there for this week. Next week, we are going to be leaving the classic series behind, and we're going to be concentrating on the first season of Strange New Worlds. So we're going to see whether the newest iteration of the show lives up to the standards of the old one. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.